0: So last night Jason talked really wonderfully about the mind And so I thought I would start, maybe in honor of Jason, (laughs) with a poem And it's a poem from Robert Bly and it's called Things to Think So just in case, you know, you haven't had enough things to think (laughs) Think in ways you've never thought before If the phone rings Think of it as carrying a message Larger than anything you've ever heard Vaster than a hundred lines of Yates Think that someone may bring a bear to your door Maybe wounded and deranged (laughs) Or think that a moose has risen out of the lake And he's carrying on his antlers A child of your own Whom you've never seen when someone knocks on the door think that he's about to give you something large tell you you're forgiven or that it's not necessary to work all the time or that it's been decided that if you lie down no one will die so you know this dying thing we, it often comes up on retreat and in interviews and conversations and today at lunch downstairs in that secret place where the teachers hang out <laughs> we all were talking about what it's like to be in our 60s and 70s and well I guess I'm the only one in my 70s but you know they're coming along <laughs> And and that way in which As we age It becomes very, very apparent That um, that's what's going to happen There's no escaping it at all And as these questions and thoughts come I think a lot about a friend of mine Who died just a couple of weeks ago And um, I didn't know him well. He was actually really the husband of a a long, long time student of mine, somebody I've known for about 30 years. He was a Zen practitioner, and he really changed how his mind worked. He really trained his mind. And he really paid attention to the instruction about this is how it is. This is the way it is. And he lived that instruction right into the last hours of his life. This was how it was, one moment at a time. I'm sure he had times of fear and upset and scared. And nonetheless, that was the general thrust of his of his life. So in his honor, I also I'm reading everything in everybody's honor tonight, I guess. Mm-hmm. I wanted to bring to you this one story. It's a story I've actually done some writing about recently and it's one I like very, very much. It's called The Old Woman's Miraculous Powers. Mm-hmm. And it's about three monks who are traveling together, and they're traveling down the road. It's a Zen story, so it's going to be a little chewy, you'll see. (laughs) And on their way down the road, they met a woman who had a tea shop. And so they went in, they thought this seemed like a good idea, and they went in, and she brought them three cups. And she said, this old woman, maybe with purple hair, I don't know. (laughs) She said, Oh monks, let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. Wow. (laughs) What are you going to do, right? And for one thing, if you're a monk, and if you have miraculous powers, you're not supposed to talk about them or show them or flash them around in any way. And so they just sat there and kind of looked at each other. And the woman said, watch this decrepit old woman show her own miraculous powers. And she picked up the cups and she poured the tea and she went out. That's the end of the story. So you can chew on that one. It's wonderful, isn't it? Because, like for my friend, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. It's very simple. Just being there, just being here, just pouring tea. And at the same time, of course, and you especially know this now after this period of practice, it's very, very difficult just to be here. Mm -hmm. But my friend did it one day at a time. This woman did it in pouring the tea. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've read at retreats that story that Bob told the other night. About his visit to his teacher, and and I just wanted to read you the last little bit again. I carried it around with me for a long time. And so Bob asked him, you know, about uh, what he was going to do, what was his plan? I've always liked it that Bob wanted to know what his plan was. (laughs) What's the plan? Um, Because, you know, we all want to know what's the plan, right? And Sayadash said, if I see something, Seeing, seeing. If I hear something, hearing, hearing. If I smell something, smelling, smelling. If I feel something, feeling, feeling. If I taste something, tasting, tasting. If there are thoughts, thinking, thinking. I will be mindful, Mm -hmm. and so should you. Just like that. One moment at a time. Not complicated and not easy. So you don't do one retreat and get it all figured out, and you don't go to a six-week meditation class and get it all figured out. It's really a lifetime project that we work on over and over and over again. And just when you think that you've kind of gotten it taken care of, maybe you're on the track, you discover that something has shifted somewhere and there's more work to be done. It's kind of like taking care of your garden, you know. And the garden, there's never a point, those of you who have gardens know this, Mm -hmm. there's never a point where you're done with your garden because if you just wait a couple of weeks, the weeds will come back and then you've got to start. And, you know, the mind and the heart is often, I think, fairly weedy for most of us. Mm -hmm. So probably as Jason noted last night, that at this point in the retreat, you've noticed that about your mind, that it's pretty unruly, and you probably have some opinions about your own mind and heart, and my guess would be that not all of those opinions are good. And of course that's part of the problem, is that way in which we hold our own minds and hearts in such low esteem. And in this retreat, we've looked at the Foundations of mindfulness, that was kind of, sort of, the theme of the retreat. So we've looked at that first foundation of the breath and the body. I think of that almost as the foundation of the foundations. You know, it's so very basic being in the body with the breath, moment after moment. And then we looked at the second foundation of the feeling tone of things, of noticing that all of our experience comes in one of three flavors it's either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant and then last night we looked at the third of the foundations that of the mind-heart complex of all the things that can happen in the mind and the heart the thoughts themselves the emotions the contracted states of mind the expanded states of mind many, many, many different states So tonight we come to the fourth of the foundations of mindfulness, sometimes called the dharmas. I think of it as the foundation of the lists, actually. And so these are the things that you begin to notice when you are giving your attention to your experience. And sometimes you can um, work it the other way, you know, you look at your experience and you notice, oh, it organizes itself into these kinds of categories sometimes you can reflect on the categories as a way to become mindful, to move into mindfulness so it consists of the five hindrances so these are the things that kind of keep us from seeing clearly desire or attachment and aversion and restlessness and one of my favorites, sloth and torpor so sleepiness and doubt And then the aggregates, which Jill mentioned, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And then there's the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, feeling, and again, thoughts. Um, And the factors of awakening, which is the one list that I sometimes stumble over. Let's see. Um, Mindfulness and investigation and effort and joy mindfulness, investigation, effort joy, tranquility, concentration and with equanimity yeah, got it Mm -hmm. so, and then last but hardly least Mm -hmm. the four noble truths Mm -hmm. so it's this last teaching that I really want to focus on tonight and talk about and expand on Um, because this is the teaching about how we come to an ending of suffering how we come to the end of dukkha the word that got asked about this morning, and, the, and how do, how is it that I always I've always loved my favorite Dukkha definition is the one about being out of round because I always think instead of, I guess shopping carts aren't out of round but you know the way that shopping carts kind of always go you know in some weird direction because it's tweaked right and an out of round wheel of course has that flat place that it hits every now and then. And um, and life is like that, you know I mean, is your life out of round? Mine is, it's always out of round And if you smooth it out, of course it doesn't last very mm-hmm. long It's unsatisfactory, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's lots of anguish when we get attached to things And this is the core teaching of the Buddha It's the first of the teachings of the Buddha The teaching on the Four Noble Truths was called The Turning of the Wheel of the Dharma and, um, and so it's that, it was the first teaching he gave at Sarnath, and it's common to all traditions of Buddhist practice. I heard the Dalai Lama once say, This is what makes you a Buddhist. If you're interested in the, you know, and, and understand the Four Noble Truths, then that's it. Then you're in the club, I guess. So, you know, and it's the teaching in which. He noticed and taught about how there's this endless stream of anguish and distress. And described then about how we create so much of this ourselves um, when we get attached to things being a certain way. He also acknowledged, you know, there's, there's dukkha, there's also dukkha dukkha. <laughs> and dukkha dukkha is the stuff that's just inherently painful, like your hips, your back, you know, your headache and that kind of thing. It comes with having a body and being a human being. It's it's that place where pain is required and suffering is optional, you know. And, um, it's true for program people, but it was also true for the Buddha. And that's really what he was teaching. So so he was saying that that thing about the suffering. That's the place where he was really interested. And of course what we're mostly attached to is having things be some way other than the way that they are or we're trying to keep them exactly the way they are because it's perfect right now and of course that doesn't work either because everything is constantly changing so out of this place where we grab and hold on and want and try to control come wars and murders and arguments and divorces and political disasters and endless mental suffering come because of all of these attachments all of the various ways that we human beings get ourselves into trouble blessedly of course there is the third noble truth in which the Buddha said there's good news, it doesn't have to be this way it is possible to learn, to let go to let things be, and then in the fourth of the noble truths, he laid out a training really for the mind and the heart: a wise view and wise intention, wise speech, action and livelihood, wise um, effort, concent- effort, mindfulness and concentration. So, one portion on kind of how your stance towards things, one piece on living your life wisely and carefully and one piece on training the mind and you know all of Buddhist teaching since then pretty much has been a riff on this basic core teaching over and over and over again some years ago I sat a period of solo retreat for a few weeks and I decided that I wanted to read my way through the Majima Nikaya which is the book of middle length suttas so the teachings of the Buddha there are many different collections of suttas the sense about this thick and, and is 100 and pretty close to 150 um, suttas and um, I wasn't interested to. I wasn't trying to be a, a scholar about it, I just wanted to get the flavor of the Buddha's teachings so I started reading You know, I'd read two or three a.m and make a few notes and and about halfway through I thought, the Buddha had a shtick (laughs) just like every other Dharma teacher I've ever known you know, if you listen to Bob Stahl after a while you kind of know the Bob Stahl flavor right, you listen to Jason you know the Jason flavor, you listen to Mary Grace you know the Mary Grace flavor if you've ever listened to Jack Cornfield, you know the Jack Cornfield flavor and you know, the Dalai Lama even has his flavor, and and they all have we all have particular things that we love to teach about and so did the buddha and he taught over and over and over again about suffering and the ending of suffering he really really it's very sweet when you think about it he so wanted us to come to an ending of suffering So, that's the question, right? You probably want the answer at this point. How can we end our suffering?
1: You've know, you
0: probably seen it pretty clearly, a lot of it this week while you've been sitting here. And how do we not only end our own suffering, but open our hearts to all the other beings, all the other people, all the other creatures around us, omitting none in the words of the Mata Sutta. You don't get to leave anybody out, you know, on... I'm going to end the suffering for all the beings except that one over there you know, that one, we're not going to I really wasn't pointing <laughs> sorry about that you know and, and so the, the idea is to keep the heart open so that we can um, work towards ending the suffering of all beings it's a huge charge and it's too late you can't turn around now you know, you, all of us, we've all started on this path. So it's a lifetime's worth of practice that is lying there ahead of us. And so that creates a wonderful intention for our lives, doesn't it? You could touch on that every day, you know, wishing to end your own suffering and the suffering of all beings. There's a little prayer that I got from the Dalai Lama once that, Starts with a wish to free all beings. You know, it's to say that every day to free all beings. So, as most of you know, this has been a huge transition year for me and my own life. Somebody reminded me in the last day or two that moving is very high on the list of. Stressful activities It's kind of right under public speaking And the fear of death (laughs) (laughs) Public speaking, interestingly enough I think is the highest And so not only did I make this move From here, from Santa Cruz To the Big Island of Hawaii Um, which was enormous, you know, you forget after you've lived in a place for 32 years about bank accounts and doctors and lawyers and your Pilates teacher and your yoga teacher and your massage person, (laughs) it just goes on and on and on it's like where's team Mary Grace, they've all disappeared (laughs) rushing into the pit to put me back together again so there was all of that, and then it also turned out that I needed to have retinal surgery on my left eye it was fairly significant, it was for a macular hole and um, so I was more than unsettled as you can imagine because I found this out only maybe six weeks after we made the move I'm pretty dazed by the news and a number of fairly significant plans one of them being to the teach a retreat right here at IRC had to be cancelled out and a long retreat that I was planning on sitting and there were lots of preparations for the surgery itself and then not only that but when you have retinal surgery you have to spend a period of time face down so either you know lying face down or sitting with your face down and there was a certain assortment of props and things that I had to get so there was just a lot of stuff going on to get ready for this thing that of course I wasn't exactly happy about doing and during that time I came across a book by my friend Norman Fisher a new book and I will put it up on the bulletin board so you can see it. Um, it's called a Tra- Training in Compassion. It's probably the best practice book I've ever read, ever, period, bar none. I think it's really, really fabulous and highly recommend it. And it's a book about a particular Tibetan teaching. Um, that comes The basic text is called The Root Text of the Seven Points of Training the Mind. which was a wonderful guide that was written in the 12th century and has been studied actually ever since in many, many, many commentaries. Norman's is only one of the latest, have been written about it. It's been used by many, many people to train the mind. And it's another riff on the Eightfold Path, really. And it has 59 slogans or little pithy teachings that can support your training so I wanted to talk about that some tonight because I'm excited by it and I found it really helpful and I hoped it would be helpful to you and I feel that it is a teaching which really explicates this last it's part of this last foundation and is very useful in the ending of suffering and very practical as you will see so it starts um, with Suggesting that there are some reflections that will support your practice, and which continue to support your practice as long as we live, and and you can keep going back to these reflections as a way to to uh, inspire you. Somebody was asking about inspiration the other day, and um, one is to remember that it's actually very rare to have a human life with leisure and opportunity for practice. You know, so all of those trillions of bacteria, right? And so, I don't know, we're 40-odd people in this room, so we are way outnumbered, for one thing. And then if you add in all of the bugs and the fish and the birds, and then, of course, you imagine that we are only one little tiny planet in an extraordinarily large cosmos, and pretty soon the notion that you have a human life no matter what you believe, what your personal <coughs> cosmology is, it's extraordinary. It's really, really unusual. And it's short. We are mortal. That's the second reflection, as I started with. That place where we, it's really important to remember. You know, if you, those of us who are older, it's a little bit in our face, but if you're younger, you know, you never know when the other driver will really blow it or you'll go to the doctor and all of a sudden I talked to somebody this afternoon who went in for a routine blood test and the results were not routine you know, happens all the time so things turn really suddenly and it's helpful to remember that it inspires our practice it's helpful to remember that all of our actions even the tiniest ones have consequences you know, somebody once said to me, "I have no idea how to create peace in the world, but I do know how to be peaceful." It's a great teaching that that person gave me, because you know, they were really saying, "That's how you do it. You be peaceful, and that creates pretty peaceful reverberations, and then that goes on out." Imagine if every one of us, you know, practiced being peaceful—that would be a shift in this community. And then there's the reflection on how much suffering there is all around us. That's the first noble truth all over again. It also teaches that there's a foundation for practice in mindfulness and the practice that we've been doing all week. This is such a basic mind-training practice. And if you did nothing else, actually, for the rest of your life, but practice being fully present, it would be hugely, hugely helpful. So simple and so hard, you know. Just learning to be present enough with ourselves so that we can see clearly what is happening around us and that there's enough space then in which to make skillful decisions. And that's very, very important. It's called clear comprehension actually in the world language of Vipassana, a place where You know, you go, oh, I'm angry. You recognize that you're angry. And then you think, I think it's time to go into the bathroom and close the door and think about what to do. And so you do that instead of opening your mouth. And, you know, maybe it saves the day because you've created a little bit of space. You've been mindful. And there are also foundational practices of the heart, and we've done some of them this week here. The practice of loving kindness, of really working at changing the attitude of the mind, and it's so important. What I said the day that I was teaching Metta, that, that you know, you do it, you, you you do it regardless of what you are feeling, because it's just teaching the mind. It's pushing through the hard frozen rocky ground of the mind to create a little ditch so the, the loving kindness will flow toward yourself and towards others. but it's very, very hard work changing our attitude. Because that's, that's it, isn't it? It's our attitude really. you know do you meet your experience? Did you meet every experience you had this week with an attitude of friendliness? You know, if you're here, would you raise your hand? Because I imagine that's, you know, nobody here did that for everything that happened. Or did you wish you had some other kind of experience? You had the better retreat, or the retreat you had last time. Or maybe you're now wishing that you had the retreat that you will have next time. You're sure you will. (laughs) And we get so irritated and impatient with our own heart and mind and actions, not to mention how irritated and impatient we get with the hearts and minds and actions of others. You know, there's always someone who is a problem. And Jason mentioned, you know, how much we see the judging mind when we practice that burdensome practice of judging which brings annoyance and weariness in the words of one of the great Zen teachers. And this is true, you know, that so often this mind, this irritated, impatient mind, is just Endlessly critical. There was a a horrendous moment in my practice when I was sitting down at Yucca Valley one year, and my room was across some distance away from where the meditation hall was. So every night, you know, I had to walk back. And um, I was walking back kind of slowly, as you do sometimes on meditation retreats, and just minding my own business. And all of a sudden, I realized that every, every thought I had, maybe except for one one one-thousandth of a percent, was either judging me or judging them or figuring out how I could be so they wouldn't judge me. Mm -hmm. That was the content of the mind. It was awful. It was really awful, you know. And it's a really difficult insight, and many of you have seen some of that, and it's not a very nice insight, is it? And it's one of the most important ones you can possibly have, to begin to see that that's what the untrained mind does. And when we see it, that then can provide some motivation for doing this training, and being present, and learning to open the heart and the mind. So there I was, you know, in, on the big island, and in the midst of all this transition and all this suffering, and, you know, I didn't, I really knew I didn't want to create more suffering around it. It would have been so easy to do that, right? And, um, and so I, I just happened upon this book, actually, I think it came up on my Facebook page, maybe, because Norman and I are friends on Facebook. There was a new book on compassion, I thought, oh, cool, and... Then I looked at the review or looked at it on Amazon and got excited and bought it. And, you know, it was a breath of fresh air. And He's great. You know, he's a good Jewish boy who's a Zen priest writing about a Tibetan teaching and <laughs> now he's offering it to Theravadan practitioners. How <laughs> <a> good can <thing laughs> it get, you know? <laughs> and he's got kind of a humorous way of looking at things, very grounded and you know the, the teaching really does echo as I said of course what we've done here it's got that initial section about opening the mind and creating the ability for things to arise and pass as they will just what we're learning here learning to rest in this openness of mind and, and just that as we've already seen just that is a major shift in attitude some of you are probably seeing that and um, this particular training uses another practice, a practice of compassion um, called Tonglen, which I've taught on occasion. Uh, it's a practice where you breathe in the suffering, you breathe it into your own heart. You can imagine it as having a texture, as color. When you breathe it into the heart, it changes, right? The word Karuna in Pali actually means the quivering of the heart. And I love it that in Lojong, you kind of say, okay, heart, you're going to quiver, right? (laughs) And so you breathe it in, and in fact, the heart does kind of quiver, and then you breathe out compassion to yourself, you can do it for yourself, you can do it for all other beings. It's a little startling, you know, it can be a little scary. It's like, what, breathe it in? You know, I don't know about that. You know, Maybe I'll get contaminated (laughs) if I breathe in your illness or your fear, or maybe I'll get caught. Or maybe if I breathe in my own suffering... You know, maybe I'm going to feel it even more. It'll be worse, you know. But we're challenged, actually, by this practice to do it. And um, what I can tell you is that it actually does begin to shift things. And, you know, our attitude won't change if the heart and mind don't change. It's really, really important to underline again that just like metta and loving kindness, compassion is not an emotion it's not feeling sorry for, it's not sympathy. It's that ability to be present with your own pain and with that of another. It's something that you do. It's not something that you feel. Any emotion that comes along, any feeling, any squishiness, any any of that, that's extra. It's great when it happens, but it's not always there. So after we do all these initial practices of, you know, learning to be present, working with um, the basic foundations of of mindfulness, beginning to open the heart, practices of loving kindness, practices of compassion, then the, then the slogans kind of really kick in, and one of the first ones says, "Turn things around, turn things around," and um, in that and some of the following. Slogans. it picks up the theme that Jill talked about the theme of Vedana, of the feelings because the very next one says three poisons, which are greed, hatred, and delusion three flavors of objects three objects, so pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral and then three seeds of skillful action so it's, it's pointing to the connection between greed, hatred, and delusion and these feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral and that, you know, how we work with them it can either go towards skillful action it can be a seed of skillful action or of course it can get you in trouble so we know, all of you know what your habitual reactive thing is to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, right? we've all done it any number of times and we so often get caught by desire or aversion, particularly with pleasant and unpleasant, you know. And, and so, the, you know, it's very, very pleasant, and, and you're, you're hardly, I mean, there you are, you're eating this fabulous lemon bar <laughs> at supper, right? And what happens? You get two bites into it, and the mind kicks in, Right? I wonder what the recipe is. I wonder how they did it. Do you think there's butter in it? Maybe there's a lot of butter and probably some eggs. And pretty soon you're off thinking about how you are going to make more lemon bars when you get home while you're still eating the lemon bar here. Right? I mean, we've all done this. Maybe you didn't do it because you're on retreat and you're really being good about eating. But we do do that a lot with food. You can do it with fabulous sex. You can do it with walking in the woods. You know, and you're on to getting more while you could be enjoying what you have. It's astounding. And, of course, it goes the other way. You know, if it's, if it's unpleasant, we very quickly move into aversion, and we leave, and we don't sit and really take in the difficulty, the pain, of whatever the unpleasant sensation is. And sometimes that's important to really feel it. And then, of course, sometimes with things that are neutral we just space out, numb out, go away and are blinded by delusion And so often, you know, do we catch the flavor the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral? No, you know, the first thing you know is you're having a fit of of desire or aversion and it's so interesting it gets really compounded, right? I'm greedy, right? I, I'm thinking about making all those lemon bars. And then I realize I'm thinking about making the lemon bars. So I get upset and aversive because I'm being greedy. And then I sort of think, oh, no, it's really okay. I'm here at the retreat and I'm not doing that, you know. And then I realize I really am. And then I'm aversive about the whole thing. And then I get greedy for a happier state. And it just goes on, you know, on and on. But this teaching says hey, you can, even at this point, You can turn it around So here's another favorite poem It's called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep A Gun in the House
1: (laughs) It's by Billy Collins
0: He says The neighbor's dog Will not stop barking He is barking The same high rhythmic bark That he barks every time They leave the house They must switch him on On
1: their way out
0: The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can hear, still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised <laughs> confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for a barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking sitting there in the oboe section, barking. his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. Next time, the dogs bark. Yeah. so these events these difficult events are opportunities for the heart to open for us to learn and for us to wake up nothing is wasted ever, it does not have to be wasted it's all useful as part of this process of waking up, it's like compost you know so in order to do this in order to have this happen we have to be willing to meet our experience with interest and with friendliness as though no matter what it is no matter how caught you are there is something to learn here as though even being caught could help you to wake up there's a story um, about the great Tibetan Saint Milarepa and Milarepa, you could think maybe Milarepa might have been here and retreat with us and he went into one, back to his room one of these nice rooms, you know and he opened the door to his room so you can imagine going into your room and inside his room it was a cave in his case there were five seven actually, I think horrendous demons, really and if you've ever looked at Tibetan art you know, the big bulgy eyes and the sharp teeth and the claws and they're pretty nasty looking guys and and there they were in his room but he was a saint, right? so he kind of knew how to practice and he said, oh, well, welcome you know, I'm so happy that you've come to my room at IRC to be here with me and immediately, you know three of them, four of them, disappeared and that was cool, but he still had the rest to contend with. And so then he said, "Well, okay." And he sang them a song, and he said some chants, and then he fixed some tea. And when he offered them the tea, then you know, it was all all but one left. So there he is, you know. And this is the biggest one—really big, huge demon. So Milarepa took a big breath. And he laid himself in the mouth of the demon And the demon disappeared So that way in which you, we are invited to go right into the mouth Of whatever it is that's being the problem you know, to, I mean obviously you don't put yourself in the mouth right away You did say welcome first <laughs> and, But in the end, you know, there he was so this practice that you know you began a couple of days ago, giving your attention to the vedana of your experience, is so important because this this is the trigger, this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral place. That's the trigger. It's the trigger in the chain of dependent origination, which is the teaching about how suffering begins. And it's the place that if you don't catch it, then you're on into craving and attachment and suffering. So we give that our attention when we can and when we can't, and there we are in total aversion or, you know, desire turn it around, go right into it be really curious you know, our friend Ajahn Sumedho likes to say things like hatred is like this you could try that, there you are sitting there on your cushion a volcano of rage and anger. Hatred is like this. Desire is like this. Lust is like this. Jealousy is like this. Joy is like this. But we're not talking about joy here, we're talking about the difficult ones. And it can be really helpful to begin to see, oh, you know, this is a this is it's they're often very uncomfortable states of the mind. When we don't pay too much attention to them, we don't see that. And it can be very helpful to remember also that you're not the only person. You're not the only person here to be cranky or anxious or impatient or afraid or in pain. And that actually seems to be very, very helpful. That begins to ease the suffering. I have was reminded recently, as I've thought about all of this, of a time way back when I was in my 20s and I was helping out at a retreat. A Catholic retreat in those days, and um, somewhere along the line, as I was doing whatever piece of service I was doing, and we were talking about things, I realized that I was not the only person on the planet who worried about whether other people liked me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And really, up until then, I thought it was just me. I assumed all the rest of you knew that everybody liked you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we don't, do we? We nobody knows that. We all worry. Do they like me? You know, will it be okay? What happens if I do this or that? You know? And so that when we do that, that begins to allow us to go into that state and to meet it and to see what happens when I go into the aversion, when I go into the fear. And when we watch the Vedana, the, the feeling tone, we're at that point where we can actually change the trajectory instead of letting it go on to the unskillful actions so the day of my surgery I had just actually begun to play with these slogans and I'd come to this one and I thought well this is interesting because it's going to be unpleasant I knew that, you know, surgeries are not pleasant, hospitals are not easy and could I work with it in such a way that I didn't just go into a fit of aversion which is, I'm a pretty averse person actually and I can do that pretty easily and, you know, could I pay attention to it and let the unpleasant just be unpleasant and could I actually make some effort to notice that there were actually some pleasant things as well you know, people were really trying hard to take care of me and I wish I could tell you that I had been 100% successful and, you know, sort of cruised through the day in a Cloud of bliss and happiness radiating loving kindness to all of the doctors and nurses and whatnot, and I didn't. But it was a lot easier to just begin to know that I could turn it around. I could turn it around over and over and over. So then the next group of slogans continue this idea of turning things around here's the list of them it says turn all mishaps into the path drive all blames into one be grateful to everyone I'm going to go back over these you don't have to remember them see confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness here's one of my favorites do good, avoid evil appreciate your lunacy pray for help (laughs) (laughs) and last but hardly least whatever you meet is the path So, you know, these are great slogans I actually took all 59 and made a pack of cards And so I shuffle them every day and pull one Just to see, you know, what's the slogan for the day I often don't like what I get But it's usually the one that I need to hear So, turning all mishaps into the path You know, I think I said in here the other day There's nothing outside the realm of practice Isn't that wonderful? It really is wonderful There's nothing that you cannot practice with. No matter what comes up on or off the cushion, that's your practice. If your mind is scattered today, how can you be calmly present with a scattered mind? And just notice, look at that. Look at that crazy, nuts mind. Can you let it run around for a while and not hate it? Or... Maybe sometimes it happens people get sick on retreat, you know, and they think, oh no, I've lost my retreat. I'm not going to have my retreat. But that's not true. You're just having a retreat that's about being sick. You know, that's the path. You know, during, I was sitting a three-month retreat, and I found out that my sister had breast cancer early on in the retreat. You know, one of those pieces of news that does get through. And at first I thought, oh no, my retreat is destroyed You know, I'm going to have to be on the phone It's going to be all this fussing and worrying And maybe I'm going to have to go And, and you know, after a while it was really interesting Because I learned that my mind wasn't any more crazed With real things to think about Than it had been with all the imaginary things I'd been making up it was, The mind was the mind, you know And I began to learn something from that and, you know, over and over in recent weeks, I've just had to laugh, because it's like, this is the path? <laughs> this is the path? You know? And even at any retreat center, you know, even here, even at this beautiful, brand-new retreat center, there are obstacles. And, you know, sometimes they're personal. Sometimes, you know, the food isn't quite right for you, or the bed isn't quite right, or the student next to you is breathing funny, or wiggling, or whatever, and you know, or you don't like it that there's the, there's no walking paths, really, you know, you can't go for your really good long walk or run, or you don't like the sound of the traffic or whatever, you know, and and I went on a period of retreat in between the two surgeries, and I was in this very isolated place down at the southern end of the island in a little yurt, And I got there, I was all ready, I was going to do work with these slogans, I was fired up, turn all mishaps into the path, and the first thing that happened, almost, was that the little camp stove that they gave me to cook on broke, and I had no stove. And not only that, when I called the caretakers, because I did have those, they were out of town, and they weren't going to be back, and couldn't do anything about it for a couple of days. And, you know, I was frantic and panicky And what was I going to do And did I need to have my husband come and get me Because I wasn't driving at that point point? And then I thought, oh, I'm doing a retreat About turning obstacles into the path Maybe <laughs> Maybe I need to look at that And see what I can do So what can you learn From any particular situation So then the next one says drive all blames into one so this is a really tricky one and it's fun because it means don't put all the blame out there but of course where we can immediately take it is ah it must be me right it doesn't mean that either mm-hmm. but what it does mean is that blaming others is really a useless activity it doesn't it's not very helpful to sit around and point your finger you know at, at whoever. And so the challenge is, this is the situation, whatever has happened, whatever maybe this person really did do, what can you do about it to turn it into practice? How can you turn this into practice? What can you do? So here's another Zen story. It's about a monastery, so it's like a retreat center. And in this monastery, the abbot gets served first, and one day, you know, the... One of the students came out with a big bowl of soup and he put it down right here, like that, in front of the abbot. And, you know, the abbot sniffed it, smelled good, and he leaned over and looked in and he went, (gasps) because there, floating in the soup, was the head of a snake. Somehow in the veggie chopping it had gotten caught, Right. So the abbot was a little, and he summoned the cook, you know, come over here, look at this, what's going on? What is this snake head in my soup? And the cook looked in, and then he quite calmly reached in, picked up the head of the snake, popped it into his mouth, and ate it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, wonderful, huh? And, and chewy, in a way. <laughs> You know, that, that place where, okay, that's how it was. What are you going to do about it? Snake's gone. Soup's there. <laughs> Probably not going to die if you eat the head of a snake. And he did it. So what can you do? What can you do in any particular situation to turn it into practice for yourself, and maybe be helpful to other people it doesn't mean if somebody's done something really difficult or bad that you don't also do what needs to be done around correcting that but you don't waste a lot of time just doing the finger pointing thing so then, be grateful to everyone every being is your teacher no matter what he or she does there's another teaching that's very similar that says every being around you is enlightened but one. And you know who the one is. And we are all doing what we're doing in order to help you wake up. So, you know, be grateful to the person who got the last lemon bar if that happened or the last bit of chocolate. Or be grateful to the driver in front of you who's going so slowly and there's no room to pass and you're stuck for a while. Or be grateful to the patient who's there, the doctors, before you are and they're taking up hours of the doctor's time and you have to sit and wait. Or, you know, the wrong line at the bank or, you know, the delay at the airport or whatever. It's all opportunities for practice. Rumi says, those who make you return for whatever reasons to the spirit, be grateful to them worry about the others who give you the delicious comfort that keeps you from prayer so you know it's the difficult ones who are really helpful and then you can notice can't you You when when does your heart close because that's useful to know when does your heart close when do the poisons take over and when they do can you see that and go ah look this is where I'm not cooked yet I'm not fully cooked. Here's where I'm not yet awake or enlightened. Full enlightenment, full enlightenment is a mind that never has any greed, any hatred, or any delusion. Ever. So, it's not a meditative state. It's not a state of bliss or light or music. It's the mind that is completely free in any circumstance. Now what's wonderful is often we get tastes of awakening, tastes of of a free mind, tastes of a mind that has no greed, hatred or delusion. And when we do, it's really useful to notice that because that helps helps us to learn what that place is like so we can find it more easily another time. And of course the art of practice is to string those things closer and closer together. It's also really helpful in all of this to remember how utterly interconnected we are with everyone else. You know, I've often thought, I I think there might be something that happens when you get old. I'm not sure... But I, I just have this sense, you know, I think I see pregnant women and I think the baby about the baby coming out of that woman and then that baby grows up and another baby comes out. And it's you know, like we're one big lump of protoplasm and we just kind of <laughs> keep going, right? And we've just sort of spread around. But not only that, of course, um, we're really completely interconnected with everything because it's all stardust, right? right? That somehow got started in some supernova who knows how many mil- millions or billions of years ago, and then all of the molecules that make up everything around us came from such an event. Or you can think about all of the people who made this week possible, if you want to do that, you know, and all the folks at IMC and Gill, the people who got this century started, and... And you could think about Jack and Joseph and Sharon who brought the Dharma back from Asia. And then you could think about Ajahn Chah back there in Thailand and Mahasi Sayada and Bob Sayada. And then you could think about the airplane that brought me over from Hawaii and the people who were taking care of me on the airplane and Bob's mother and your grandparents. And pretty soon, you know, you have the whole world here in here with us. And that's part of what we need to do in order to wake up and um, to be grateful to everyone. See confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. So that's inviting us to be really different, be differently with our confusion, with those difficult moments. And not to get caught. Remember that comparing mind we were talking about this morning and yesterday, that place where You know, we're always somewhat better than, or somewhat worse than, or just the same as. And and to really realize that um, there isn't any solid, separate self, that it's all impermanent, rising and passing, and any grasping at anything leads to distress. What would the Buddha say is always a good question, you know. And to practice, really, the Four Noble Truths. To live in a state of constant amazement at the cosmos, the life on our planet, and again to see how interconnected it all is. This is all part of, of how do we work with these mind states that, that are confused, and then to remember to practice emptiness and that interconnectedness as a counter to it do good, avoid evil, appreciate your lunacy, and pray for help. So the first two are pretty easy, right? Do good and avoid evil. And they are sort of basic life practice, and I suspect most of you make a habit of being fairly well behaved and avoiding evil. And especially, of course, here on retreat, it's very easy. But to appreciate your lunacy, you know, that's... But you know, it's so helpful. I have finally, over the years, come to go on occasion. Look at that Mary Grace O'R personality; she's doing it again. Whatever the, it is, you know, and and it, it's like you get to have a little, bring a little sense of humor to the situation. You're doing it again. Is that crazy or what? You know and when we don't want the state we're in we might not like it but we meet it with a sense of respect and a sense of humor I I actually don't think you really can practice very well without a sense of humor it's pretty, pretty hard and it's hugely helpful to have it and to appreciate your own craziness and ask for help please ask for help ask us for help ask each other for help Pray if you would like. I asked my good friend, Ajahn Amra, who's a monk, because, you know, Buddhists and prayer is a little tricky, right? Who do you pray to? What do you do? And he said, oh, he said, please. There are all kinds of beings out there, you know, great numbers of beings. And just ask for help. They'd be happy to help you. So, you know, if you want to pray and ask for help, even if you don't know who you're praying to, go ahead, ask for I think it's the asking for help, actually, that's the really important part. Whatever you need is the path. Whatever, whoever, whenever, that's your path. You can't get lost. Isn't that great? It's all the path. No matter what happens, it's now your path. may not be the path you thought you were going on, But it's the path you are on. So it's really, really important in all of this to be curious, you know, to bring that to your practice. How can I use this moment to wake up? How can I end suffering in this moment, my own and that of others? There is an end to dukkha. There is. That very basic teaching the core of the fourth foundation of mindfulness there is an end to dukkha an end to the stress and distress of our lives we can wake up to that and we can live in that way and maybe you know maybe you've had a glimpse of that this week and we would hope that you would continue to practice as you have here maybe with some of these slogans if you'd like to end the distress in your life and that of others pay attention open your heart and change your mind Mm -hmm. so here's a reading from Ajahn Snido to end with he says awareness is your refuge awareness of the changingness of feelings of attitudes of moods of material change and emotional change stay with that because it is a refuge that is indestructible it is not something that changes there's a refuge you can trust in the refuge is not something that you create it is not creation it is not an ideal it's very practical and very simple but easily overlooked or not noticed when you're mindful you're beginning to notice it's like this So let's just sit the way you are and breathe together for a moment.